Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we're thankful to be able to come together and worship, to sing praises to our Savior who has washed us clean by his blood and made us whiter than snow. We pray that our hearts and minds would be able to focus on him further this morning as we consider your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have I got enough pens here? This is called the coefficient of nerdiness. I'll, I'll, I'll stand in front of 88 engineering students uh, shortly, reading week being over. You know, Dilbert, Dilbert is the classic sort of engineer with the stain on his shirt that he said, what, what are you looking for in the closet? I'm looking for a, a tie that matches the stain on my shirt. That, that's Dilbert. But, you know, standing in front of 88 students, I won't see any Dilberts. The, the engineer nerd is a thing of the past. They're slouched like this, and they might have one eye open. Uh, a week ago, um, John Wells brought up a verse, and I said, it seems that it's time. I've, I've been thinking about this content for quite some time. I wrote the words to that song in 2019, and a year later, my son-in-law presented me with the music to those words, Lydia and Ben. And um, I was tidying it up on, on, I think it was Thursday night, and I got an email from my daughter-in-law, and it says, uh, do you have a new song? I said, okay, I'm working on this very song at this very moment. So yes, I guess it's time. We'll try, to, we'll try, that, try out this song. And so I'm speaking this morning on mainly Matthew 26 and Revelation 19. Linen, linen comes from flax, sash in Hebrew and busanon in, in Greek, fine linen, frequently in Exodus 26, finely twisted linen. And it, uh, I never knew that it looks like that. I, you know, going, doing a little bit of research for this on agriculture. I don't know anything about agriculture. I know there's somebody in this room with a degree in agriculture, so they probably know 50 times more than what I would know about these things. So the, those are the seeds, and then when you, when you um, grind them down, you, you, can, you get something. So what do you get out of that when you go from the big things to the ground up things? What's one of the things you get out of that? You can buy it on the, in the shelf in Walmart or drugstore. It's supposed to have omega-3 fatty acids, flax oil, linseed oil. If you combine linseed oil with certain other, I guess, polymers, you can get varnish out of it. That's interesting. You can treat wood with linseed oil if it's the right kind of treated linseed oil. Or if you don't do that, you can eat it, which is interesting. So it's not just for clothing. Um, it's um, a plant like that. Those are sheaves of flax. And it actually has a flowering stage, and you don't let it go to the flowering stage, I guess. And that's a, that's a beautiful picture. And uh, when you look at the country of Egypt, I teach hydrology, so sometimes I mention the Amazon, the great rivers of the world, the Brahmaputra, Bangladesh has a similar sort of pattern. You go north, uh, 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 a young lady with a Saudi Arabian passport was complaining about what the uh, President Assisi is doing with the Nile in my office only yesterday, uh, on Friday. And you look at this, this, the Nile, you've got the Blue Nile, the White Nile, and it goes north into Egypt, 
And Egypt is, you know, you've got Sudan and Egypt, barren, not green, beige, nothing. And there's the, there's the Nile, the Nile, the Nile. And then it opens up and it makes a green triangle, at the left of which is Alexandria. And uh, that area, that triangle, was, a, was actually what was hotly contested for many centuries because it's, it represents so much money that you can grow anything in that delta because of the deposit of the sediment. Of course, it's a natural place for the refreshment of the nutrients, and you get um, linen grown there. So when people talk about, you want good linen? You want good linen? You want Egyptian linen. You want Egyptian linen from the delta of the Nile. And that was a, a highly prized commodity in the Middle East all through you know, bef before the Greeks and then into the Romans and into the time of the Lord Jesus. They did many things with it. They wrote on it. They did many things with it. It's interesting to me that when you look at the warp and woof of Scripture, forgive the pun, you have a continuity of not only history, of theology, of culture in a godly sense, almost godly sociology, you might say. And all of these things are often tied to theological metaphors. So somebody would say, well, you know, the Bible has 66 books. Uh, it's written over a period of, uh, you know, a couple of thousand years. How can this have unity? It has amazing unity, amazing unity. That is a priest with an ephod, and that has 12 stones, and they're on his chest. He actually has three layers of linen. Uh, his underwear is linen. His garment is linen. His outer coat is linen. And the, the, the chest plate there with those 12 stones, what does that represent? What are those 12 stones? 12 tribes and you, you. You are the new children of God. You are the uh, new kingdom of God, the children of God. So I love this picture because Jesus is our high priest and we are close to his chest. We are close to his heart. And then you go fast forward. Uh, well, if the Exodus was 1800 BC, you fast forward uh, 1900 years or so and you come to the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter... The, the Apostle Peter can say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We don't need this kind of linen-clad priest to intervene for us because the Lord Jesus is our high priest and he makes us priests within an assembly that can worship him. A holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that passage, and it spans nearly 2,000 years of theological and metaphorical and every other way that you could possibly look at a book, and it has unity, and it has underpinnings and overpinnings and interpinnings and interweavings. It's the most amazing book that has ever been compiled. The chapter uh, Exodus 28 goes into great detail about how this clothing must be made. 
And the linen was also used in other parts of their worship, in the walls of the tabernacle that was a portable place of worship. And it goes into great detail about that. There was extensive use of linen, not only in the clothing. So thinking about this idea of a garment and what kind of clothing you as a believer wear and what kind of clothing you could put on every day. Let's think about four kinds of garment. The most common kind of garment in the metaphorical sense is the garments of men. One of the garments that men carry around and put on is hatred, anger, envy, lust, violence, theft and greed. All of these things, they are no stranger to us. Men put them on and carry them and wear them and are comfortable in them every day. But when you are saved, you get new clothes. God gives you new clothes. Brother David McDonald shared this morning from Isaiah 1, and it talked about wearing clothes whiter than snow. And he didn't have my outline, but I'm talking about those clothes, talking about the clothes that the the believer uh, wears and the necessity of those clothes is in Matthew 26. You also have, during your Christian life, although you are saved, you are also embarking on a process and you are also seeking to be clothed with the right kind of clothing, not human earthly, fleshly clothing, but the clothing that can be wrought in your life and cover your being by the Holy Spirit. You will have that until you die. And that is a, you might say, a project. Is it a project that you embark on all by yourself? No. In fact, that would be a lost cause. And finally... As we have been singing, we will be given clothes in eternity, imperishable clothes. And the scriptures in Revelation 19 and other places talked about them as being made of linen, which is interesting, but consistent with the rest of scripture, isn't it? So let's think for a moment about the condition of a man as a man without proper clothing, and compare that to the necessity to be clothed properly for a wedding. The Lord Jesus is the bridegroom, and you are the bride, if you know the Lord. And that relationship needs to be understood and established. The Lord Jesus gave us this, uh, did I say 26? It's 22. The Lord Jesus gave us this parable of the wedding feast, and this is recorded more than once in the Gospels. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, 
treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's a very sobering passage and it is continuing in this manner. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite them to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When we think of this in terms of a, you might say, a dispensational perspective, a historical theological perspective, we know that the Old Testament promised the Messiah, and that the last prophet as a prophet was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, repent, because the Messiah is here. And he pointed out the Lord Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who pointed out that the Messiah had arrived. And during his ministry, one might say that the Lord Jesus offered his kingdom to the Jews. But they did not accept him. They did not accept that offer. In fact, they had him executed, and he was crucified. And in the plan of God, that crucifixion meant the washing away of your sins and my sins. About a month ago, one of the brothers was up here and, and alluded, to, alluded to being in sin for eternity. I can't remember exactly how Sam worded it, but did that stick in my mind? And I thought, you know, that's so true and so frightening. Think of your sin on display forever, and you get to look at it just as much as anybody else who's lost in eternity. The horror of it, the ugliness of it, will be timeless. What a horrible thought. To have my sins on display. To be aware of them. For them to be seen. For eternity. Timelessness. I'm going to live with that forever? What a horrible, horrible thought. I don't even need to think about how horrible hell is or how horrible other people's sins are. To have my sins on display for eternity and right in front of me, uncovered? Now that is a horrible thought. Give you pause. Give you pause of the urgency, the necessity, the importance of making sure that you are clothed properly for heaven. And in this uh, parable... The Lord Jesus presents to us a very strongly contrasting picture 
a contrasting picture between the joyfulness of being jointly rejoicing as compared to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Make no mistake, the stakes of salvation are very high. Make no mistake, the joys that await you are outside of your imagination, and the horrors that await those who turn away from the offer of God are also outside of human imagination. Make no mistake. <clears throat> it's good to be good to be clothed. There's a I guess an aspect of, you know, the the suitability, right? Who is suitable to be here? Who is appropriate to be here? You need to be suitable. You need to be made suitable. It needs to be that you are appropriate. And you need to have that attributed clothing in order to come to this feast. You need to be fit. You need to be adequate. You don't want your sins on display to you and to the devil for eternity. It's also a matter of glory. You think of the, the gloriousness of that wedding. We'll think about that in Revelation 19. I don't know if you've ever had recurring dreams. Sigmund Freud would say that they need to be analyzed and then you can get some help. But um, I'm not so sure about that. I've also read that as you're falling asleep, your brain has all kinds of random neuron firings that have no significance whatsoever. So you have weird dreams that have zero significance. But if you have a recurring dream, well, maybe that's something to think about. Why do you have that recurring dream? I've had a recurring dream of having to go to school in high school naked and just feeling profoundly embarrassed and profoundly unfit to be in the, in the building and being just embarrassed from the moment I arrived and embarrassed the moment I left. It's, it's interesting. I mean, that, you go back to clothing, you go back to Genesis, and you have Adam and Eve suddenly having this shamefulness about their nakedness. Yeah, my, so I've had dreams that I can relate to that. And who clothed them? God clothed them. God clothed them. The idea of the necessity of being clothed goes back to the very beginning of Scripture. It goes back to the very, very beginning. The very first mention of, of um, linen is found in Genesis chapter 41, verse 42, where Pharaoh, who had a lot of linen east of Alexandria on the delta, clothed Joseph with, with aristocratic linen. Generally, Jews would wear wool. The aristocrats among them would wear linen. And Joseph had become an Egyptian aristocrat, a high official, and got a gold chain around his neck to complement the linen. That's the first mention in Scripture in Exodus 41. I think it's lovely that we are kings and priests under God. We are the aristocrats in God's kingdom. Not that we are anything, but that God is the one who clothes us. <clears throat> Thinking about that process, the um, New Testament then you can find speaks of the necessity of putting on the right kind of clothing. And when you, you know, if you go for advice in career hunting, I guess, they'll, they'll often tell you, at least they used to, I don't know what they say anymore, but they would often tell you, you know, first impressions, 
First impressions are very important. You know, a guy comes 10 minutes late and he doesn't make eye contact and he's disheveled and needs a haircut. Ugh, he's, before he's opened his mouth, his chances of getting the job are not great. You might think I wear a tie because I'm more, I don't know what, but actually the real reason is that I don't iron my shirts and it doesn't allow my shirt to look like a seagull. <clears throat> and also I find that whenever I see a, a shirt that's open like this, it makes me think of John Travolta and I don't want to look like that. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I actually like to keep warm. The vest keeps me warm and holds everything in that's getting a little too large. And then this takes care of the problem with the shirt. So it, actually I keep warm all at the same time. See, it's all about engineering. It's all about... And um, when you have, uh, if you want to make sort of a, an impression on people, there is an aspect of, you know, how you come across. Do you come across as kind of a little bit, with a bit of built-in arrogance? Do you come across with a bit of an attitude? Uh, people are pretty sensitive. They pick this up right away. They pick it up immediately, immediately. You know, I don't think Paul here in Colossians 3 is talking about, you know, pretend to be this or put on this masquerade, pretend to be really nice. You know, that's actually a word I hate. I, I once was talking to a young lady who was thinking about marrying a non-Christian. I just, I just got so upset. I couldn't show it to her, but she was, she's a Christian and she married a non-Christian. She went against the advice of how many Christians? And what was her thing? He's really nice. Oh, my goodness. I hope to goodness he's nice. Every, you know, uh, who isn't nice in a sense, right? Everybody tries to be nice. But does he know the Lord? Does he love the Lord? Does he love the Lord's things? Is he going to serve the Lord? No, 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 and no. We need to beyond, go beyond the superficial, you know. And here you have Paul in Colossians 3 and in other places talking about putting on the right kind of thing. Now, you may remember in the end of Ephesians, it's actually a kind of armor. So there is an aspect of Christian life where we need to be fully prepared for life in this world. But there's also, for the bad parts and the difficult parts and the challenging parts and the threatening parts, the Lord can enable us to deal with all of those things with the armor of God. But there is also an aspect in our ordinary dealings with others. What should characterize our character? How should we come across to people? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, <clears throat> forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It is, it is the you know, the use and the extension of the clothing metaphor. How do you want to come across to people? 
it's kind of contradictory, with the right kind of heart. Can they see your heart? Not really. Can you show them your heart? You actually can. You can show a heart of love. You can show a heart of gentleness. You might think that if I'm in academia that I'd never run into nasty people. Think again. Think again. I'm sure you run into nasty people in, your, in the run of the day, in, in your life, in your personal life, professional life, whatever you do, so do I. And the flesh says, give tit for tat. Matthew 5.37, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, but I say unto you, no, it's not, not eye for an eye anymore. The flesh says eye for an eye. It's interesting. That's not to be our character. That is not to be what is in our hearts. The Holy Spirit can completely overrule and guide and provide the grace that we need within ourselves in order to cope with the world and sometimes in order to enable my brother David McDonald to cope with me at a board meeting in that room, right? Even though we love each other, that doesn't mean that we just, you know, go out of the building arm in arm singing after every board meeting. <laughs> it's, you know, life is life and challenges are challenges and I need grace in all circumstances. Maybe in Christian circles, our tendency is to have higher expectations of Christians. Well, if there's one thing I've learned about life is probably throw out expectations. Just as you encounter people, seek the grace of God. As you go through life, seek the grace of God, know the grace of God, appropriate the grace of God, whomever, whomever you may encounter. Don't have pre, uh, pre-expectations. Probably not a good idea. Well, <clears throat> we come to Sardis. We come to, um, at the beginning of... of uh, Chapter 3, yeah, Sardis. Dead church. Read it, dead. What a, what a thing to say about a bunch of people who meet together in the Lord's name, and John says, you're dead, you're dead. Oh dear, that is extremely concerning. I hope that we don't have deadness. I hope we have what the Holy Spirit gives us as we sing joyfully, as we love each other in the Lord, and as we serve the Lord together. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then after that, you don't read about the church anymore. You read about... A great multitude. I love this. I love that it says that it's from every nation. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That would include people who have been saved out of the terrible tribulation that is coming, who have realized, have realized that the Bible is true and that I've missed the boat, 
The church has been taken away. And I know what happened. And I repent and I turn to the Lord. And I can be saved in that period of time. But I'll probably be killed. And so we have mixed together this great multitude there in white robes, in white robes. This morning we thought a little bit about a wedding, and I'm almost done. Marriage Supper of the Lamb hearkens us back to Matthew 22, doesn't it? And now the offer to recognize the Lord Jesus as Gentiles, as individual people, has gone out for the past 2,000 years. And uncountable numbers of people have responded and put their faith in that person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a historical person who was more than a historical person because his tomb is empty. And he's coming back for me and you. And then toward the end of your Bible, only a few chapters after this that are left, we see the explicit, we read the full description here of the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you know the Lord, you'll be there. It does say supper. David McDonald said, you know, usually you go to a wedding, the food is good. I don't know what will be served. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to taste like. I don't know anything about that. But I'm very excited that that's going to happen. <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. I'll just pause there and say, have you ever noticed that if you're in front of the sink and there's water running, you can't understand one thing your wife says? <laughs> there's something about the frequency of flowing water that totally cancels out the human voice. But what you have here is something in the same frequency of a great multitude. Maybe it sounds, it, well, not maybe. It says it. It sounds like the roar of many waters. What a thought. What a great sound that's going to be. There's no ocean or sea in eternity in the, in the new earth. My mom said that that's because the sea is never at rest. And in eternity, there is peace and worship. But here we have like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride and his bride has made herself ready. Made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteousness, the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now it's quite interesting. You may think, well, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then you have this clothing that is, is there that you're wearing, and it is of God. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It does say righteous deeds of the saints. But I remind you that in 1 Corinthians 3, where the believers will be judged separately, we do not appear before the great white throne. We are judged separately at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat. And 
Anything that is not of God, what's an example from 1 Corinthians 3.16 of something that's not of God that's going to be burned up? Anybody? Wood, stubble, straw, garbage. If there's garbage that you have as baggage, it will not survive. If I'm doing this to glorify myself in this pulpit, puff of smoke is what that is. Anything that is not done through the Lord, unto the Lord, empowered by the Lord, is in the wood, hay, and stubble category. And it's going to be, I was going to say evaporated, but that's not the right word. It's going to be consumed by that fire, by that, of the, the pointless works that you and I have engaged in. Have I ever engaged in pointless things? You betcha. I just don't want to keep doing that. What a, what a waste of my spiritual effort. What a waste of time. What a waste of my life that God has given me since I was saved in 1977 in my second year of university. Make use of the time that you have. Allow God to work in you to build those things that honor him. That honor him. But you know, we need to participate I am now a grandfather of five, and I, I'm sure I have dressed a three-year-old. I have dressed a three-year-old many times. I have four kids. We have four kids. And I don't remember. That's the good part. When you have a three-year-old who doesn't want to get dressed, it's real fun. And I don't really remember. It's like, same thing today, you know, hug and kiss, and. You know? doesn't smell too good. You know. Don't have to dress them, don't have to change them, just love them and indulge them. And Yesterday my grandson said, I don't want to go home, I want to live here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Time to go home. But if you have a three-year-old, sometimes we're a spiritual three-year-old. God wants us to be dressed properly and we're, come on. You know, the old saying, get with the program. God has a program for you. God wants you to be clothed. And he wants you to be garbed. And he wants you to put forth and show forth from your heart what is of God. And one day, you'll be in a marriage supper of the Lamb. And there won't be words to describe that. Sometimes... Too often. I'm actually a more emotional person than my wife. Usually it's the other way around between men and women. Sometimes when we sing, I, I can't keep singing. My, I get choked up. I've got to leave out those three words. I'm, I'm too excited by this. I'm too thrilled by this. And I'm in a group of people who are also thrilled by this and also excited by this. And that makes me really, really joyful. Really uh, looking forward to that day when we will be able to sing together and I won't miss a word. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I won't miss a word. We will be singing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's uh, seek to put off the filthy things. Isaiah 64, 6. The righteousness that you call your own Isaiah says in 64.6, is like filthy rags. 
contaminated rags. That's your stuff. Don't need it, don't want it, don't wear it. You have to admit what it is and discard it and get rid of it and put it off and put on what God has you, has for you, has for you to put on. And you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. When you stand in that place and sing at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you will be clothed and you will look at your garb and you will say, it was all of God. These robes that I'm wearing are all his doing. They are of God. They are of the Lord, of his spirit. They are wrought by his spirit. You know the, the, the um, metallurgical phrase, wrought iron? Uh, pounded, bent, pounded, shaped, pounded, bent. Yeah, sometimes it's like that. But we get into the shape that he wants us to be in. These characteristics that we need from our hearts and in our character need to be wrought by God, by the Holy Spirit. May God give us the grace for that. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. Help us as the people and children of God in this age to be a light unto the world, to have compassion and mercy, and to remember that above all, we ourselves are recipients of mercy of your mercy. We look to the cross and remember where our souls were purchased and wherein we receive that ultimate mercy, the forgiveness of all of our sins, the washing away of our guilt, so that now, in your sight, we are white as snow. We thank you, Father, for this time and pray that you would bless us as we go out into this world. We pray for the grace to actually be your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if we might